Chapter 1 of Charles Simeon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Charles Simeon by Handley Mole. Family and School. Charles Simeon was born at Reading, September 24, 1759. As a boy of nine, he was sent to Eton and was elected there on the foundation. At nineteen, he went up with a scholarship to King's College, Cambridge, and succeeded in due course to a fellowship, which he held till his death. He was ordained deacon in 1782 and priest in 1783. In 1782, he was made minister, or perpetual curate, of the Church of the Holy Trinity in Cambridge, a benefice which was originally a vicarage of the Abbey of Dereham, and of which, after the suppression of the Abbey and until the year 1867, the bishop appointed the minister. In that pastorate he lived and laboured for just fifty-four years, through many vicissitudes of good report and evil, amidst serious and complicated difficulties, and with results which were felt far and wide. He died November 13, 1836 in his rooms in King's College, and was buried six days later in the great vault beneath the pavement of the antechapel. We may notice that Simeon's life was almost exactly contemporary with that of his illustrious friend and fellow Canterbridgean William Wilberforce, who was born in 1759 and died in 1833. William Pitt the Younger began his shorter life also in 1759, but Pitt, an undergraduate at fifteen, had left Cambridge before Simeon entered. Another famous name of 1759 is Richard Pawson. Like Simeon, and along with him, Pawson was on the foundation of Eton, and he took his bachelor's degree from Trinity College in 1782. Simeon outlasted the great Greek scholar seven and twenty years, surviving from a Cambridge which had only recently lost Gray, and was still full of living traditions of Bentley, into a Cambridge which had already felt the influence of Sedgwick, Whewell, and Julius Hare. Measured on the line of English history, his life extended from the last months of George II almost to the accession of Victoria, from the year of victories, the year of Wolfe's triumph at Quebec, through the whole course of the American War of Independence and the campaigns of the French Revolution, till Waterloo was already a memory and the Thirty Years' Peace was drawing to its close. In the line of English literature, he travelled from the period of Johnson, Burns and Cooper to a time when Coleridge had already passed away and the Lake School was on its way to literary victory and the first writings of Macaulay and of Tennyson were abroad and in the line of English religious history, he was born only twenty years after the definite rise of Methodism, and died nine years after the publication of the Christian Year, and only nine years before the secession of Mr. Newman to the Church of Rome. Such parallels and comparisons are always interesting and often important in the study of a long and powerful life, for the man who gives out a large influence, continuous and operative through many years, must himself feel and assimilate much of the influence of his time. Yet it is plain to the reader of Simeon's story that he was one of those who are not highly sensitive to contemporary currents of action and thought, partly by a peculiar concentration and independence of character, partly by a lack of the purely literary instinct, but most of all by an absolutely disinterested and single-minded devotion to one thing, followed along a line which for him was drawn very distinctly, and in a certain sense narrowly, by the providence of God, 
Simeon passed his 77 years very much more as a giver than a receiver of influence. We look in vain in his diaries, sermons or letters for a large reflection of the innumerable interests of his period. Everything betokens a mind alert and vigorous, an observer full of clear intelligence, a man to whom nothing human was indifferent. But when he sat down to write, he wrote very much as Wesley had written before him, Wesley, the all-observant and all-reading, like a man whose pen had little time for anything off the line of his public or private Christian ministry. Charles Simeon's father was Richard Simeon, a squire, the son and grandson of successive vicars of Bucklebury in Berkshire and descended directly from the Simeons of Oxfordshire, a house which had given a wife to John Hampton. His mother was Elizabeth Hutton, daughter of a family from which came two archbishops to the See of York, each of them a Matthew Hutton, the former under Elizabeth, the latter under George II. When this is said about Mrs. Simeon, all is recorded which can be gathered either from memoirs of her son or from the recollections of his yet-surviving friends. He was her fourth and youngest son and child, and perhaps she died before his memory. In any case, his early life seems to have lacked altogether a mother's influence, whether felt in its living power as the Wesleys felt it, and the elder Venn, or in the deep pathos of a remembered loss, such as Cooper knew. Richard Simeon himself was an upright man, commanding the deference of his son rather than his affection, holding religion in what is known as respect, but certainly not fostering its spirit and power in his family. He survived till Charles's twenty-fifth year. Of his three elder sons, the first Richard died young in 1782. The second, John, was fellow of all souls, a master in chancery, one of the managers of the private property of George III, and member for Reading, and was created a baronet in 1815. The third, Edward, was one of the directors of the bank, a successful and wealthy merchant. Of Charles's Eton life, a few fragmentary recollections are preserved. The boy was full of muscle and agility, he could jump over half a dozen chairs in succession and snuff a candle with his feet. Quite early in life he became what he was almost to the last, an excellent horseman, brave and dexterous, and as good a judge of a horse as if he had been born in Yorkshire. Along with energy and courage he showed also, at school as in later life, a side of oddity, or however of that rare thing in schoolboys, unconventionality in acts and habits. The American war was raging, it was in 1776, and a national fast day was enjoined. Simeon, in the words of his own reminiscence, thought that if there was one who had more displeased God than others, it was I. To humble myself, therefore, before God appeared to me a duty of immediate and indispensable necessity. Accordingly, I spent the day in fasting and prayer, but I had not learned the happy art of washing my face and anointing my head, that I might not appear unto men to fast. My companions, therefore, noticed the change in my deportment, and immediately cried out, did Porson, who never loved Simeon, suggest the Greek, Ue, ue, umin, upokrite, woe, woe unto you hypocrites, by which means they soon dissipated my good desires and reduced me to my former state of thoughtlessness and sin. I do not remember that these good desires ever returned during my stay at school. Yet an old schoolfellow, J. H. Mitchell, who survived him, says that his habits became peculiarly strict from that period, and that he was known not without ridicule on the part of those 
who knew to keep an alms box into which he put money for the poor whenever conscience accused him of wrong in word or deed. Eton at that time was no favourable seminary for virtue. The morals of schools in our own day occasion often grave anxiety to those who look beneath the surface, but surely few fathers now would deliberately say what Simeon said in his later age, that he would be tempted to take the life of a son rather than let him see the vice he had seen at Eton. And his own conduct at school, according to his own estimate, was in some respects deplorable, not, however, as far as I can gather, in the sense of impure talk or habits, but in that of ungovernable temper and extravagance in spending. From Eton he passed to King's College, January 29, 1779, bringing with him the Etonian's sound Latin scholarship, but not a great store of Greek. At no time of life did he effectually mend this latter defect, and indeed even in academic circles in his younger days Greek was far less accurately known than Latin, save by a few students. Of Simeon's undergraduate studies, scarcely a line of record remains, indeed nothing beyond the notice that he was lectured in Pearson's Exposition of the Creed and the Ethics of Aristotle, and took a strong interest in both courses. The privileges of his college, privileges which brought little benefit to the illustrious foundation, positively debarred him from the stimulus of public examinations. But his afterwork seems to indicate that he never could be quite idle, and scarcely had he entered kings, when, as we shall see presently, the most powerful of all incitements to a life of duty took full possession of his energetic will. It was into a Cambridge very different from the present that Simeon was introduced. Externally the place was a country town of some ten thousand inhabitants, exclusive of perhaps a thousand members of the university. It was poorly appointed as a town, no street lamps of any kind were used for years after 1779, and carriages could traverse only with difficulty some parts even of the main thoroughfare. Tracts or patches of moor and fenland surrounded it everywhere, almost at the gates of the outlying cottages. The now densely peopled suburb of Barnwell was a small village in the fields. King's College, as the young scholar found it, possessed indeed its glorious chapel, and already besides the chapel stood the fine structure of Portland Stone, Gibbs's building, otherwise the Fellows' building, in which the newcomer was soon to lodge, and was at last to die. But otherwise the difference was great between the past aspect of the college and the present. The street, now called King's Parade, then High Street, was bordered, on the college side of it, by old-world shops and dwelling-houses, the last of which survived till 1870. And in line with these, near the eastern end of the chapel, stood the low but picturesque buildings of the Provost's Lodge. The open space within, on which looked the chapel and Gibbs's building, was shaded on its eastern side by a row or grove of trees, conspicuous in many old views of Cambridge. The rest of the college, the original building, was a small, quaint quadrangle north of the chapel. It occupied precisely the site of the latest addition, 1891, to the library of the university, and from it has survived the beautiful gateway now skilfully incorporated into the library. In this quadrangle, or in our Cambridge parlance this court, Simeon found his first college rooms, a set looking out on the chapel. There he abode till he moved as a fellow into Gibbs's building, first into the southern rooms on the ground floor of the southern staircase, then into that set above the archway which looks through a wide semicircular window eastwards towards the town. 
the great lawn whose green sea stretches westward unbroken from gibbs's building to the river was then crossed by a broad path leading to a now vanished bridge of two arches and near the river on the side towards clare college or as it was called then clare hall lay the walled enclosure of the fellows gardens beyond the river and the bridge a stately avenue of elms of which two fragments or clumps still remain led out to the public road not till eighteen twenty eight did the college erect the present screen along the street front and the range of buildings which includes the hall and the provost's lodge and not till then was the old court sold to the university and dismantled internally as to its life of society and usage cambridge was no less unlike what we see now it would be beside my purpose to attempt a detailed account of academical procedure in which the bachelor's degree was won by methods of examination curiously different from the present, combining tests in the main study, mathematics, with tests also in logic and divinity and incidentally in Latin. It is more in point to explain that university society, under whatever influences, had sunk by Simeon's time to a discreditable level in regard both of letters and of morals. The age of Newton and Bentley was over. Gray, of whom I have already spoken, died at Cambridge in 1772, after forty years of residence, and was himself both a distinguished example of learning and refinement, and the recorder of their scarcity around him. As early as 1736 he writes to West that, Surely it was of this place, now Cambridge, but formerly known as Babylon, that the prophet spoke when he said, The wild beasts of the desert shall dwell there, and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures. The words are a caricature drawn by a student who found his own classical studies somewhat out of fashion, but the caricature affords only a fair summary of the impression left on the reader by the reminiscences of Mr. Gunning, who entered Christ's in 1780 and died in 1854, or even by the recollections of the late Professor Prime, who entered Trinity in 1799 the discipline of the university had sunk in practice to the lowest point in spite of a formidable show or theory of authority the almost entirely clerical society of the combination rooms was in many instances actually disreputable gunning assures us that of the eight seniors of trinity about the end of the century there were but two or three whose character could pass muster in the university as in england a shameless intemperance was everywhere common official dignity had fallen as low as social culture and at the great annual fair outside the town stourbridge fair a survival of the middle ages the populace ridiculed and insulted the vice-chancellor and proctors who periodically degraded themselves and their office by gluttony and intoxication opening the fair in state the gloomy and unseemly picture is not without its reliefs not all colleges were alike in disorder in 1770 died John Cooper, fellow of Bennett, now called by its ancient name Corpus Christi College. His brother William, in the timepiece written 1783, in a passage of severe and powerful satire, describing the then state of the universities, pauses and changes his tone. All are not such. I had a brother once, peace to the memory of a man of worth, a man of letters and of manners too, of manners sweet as virtue always wears, when gay good nature dresses her in smiles, he graced a college in which order yet was sacred and was honoured, loved and wept by more than one themselves conspicuous there. 
and no doubt in that period of license, personal character, once settled aright, could develop into a strong and racy individuality better than amidst more orderly circumstances. But when all is said for the Cambridge of last century, the scene is still a dark one and what was true of the university in general was certainly not least true of king's college religion at this unpropitious time shone feebly indeed alike in the university and in the town the waves of the great methodist revival appear to have left cambridge almost or quite untouched in john wesley's journal only one mention of the place is made october eleventh seventeen sixty three i rode through miserable roads to cambridge and thence to lakenheath on the outside of religious life, little was to be seen but a cold and soulless formalism. The churches were rarely, if ever, full. The parishes were little visited by the pastors, and in the college chapels the undergraduates behaved as in a playhouse. The churches of the neighbourhood were very usually served, in the habitual absence of the incumbents by fellows of colleges who rode out from Cambridge on a Sunday and contrived by hook or crook to accomplish three or even four morning services in succession. To expedite the process, a signal was sometimes concerted between the parson and the clerk. The hoisting of a flag assured the rider that there was no congregation and that he might pass on in peace, leaving Dr. Drop, so ran the phrase, to perform the office. Beneath the surface of common orthodoxy moved a strong current of free thought, Socinian, deistic, or even atheistic. No very great wit, he believed in a god, is a significant line in Gray's character of himself. John Cooper, on his dying bed, owned to his poet brother, his ministering angel, that the prevalent unbelief had so penetrated his life that he had long lost all real heart for his pastoral duties at St. Bennet's Church. Among the undergraduates, religious life in any social sense of that word was unknown, as we shall see in the narrative. John Venn, Charles Simeon, and a few other such men were, as a fact, living at the same time in the university and were in earnest as Christians, but they were almost or quite unaware of each other's existence. No holy club of Cambridge Methodists existed to draw them together and to diffuse their influence. Of the older dissenting bodies, the Baptists were the most influential. Their chapel in St. Andrew's Street, when Simeon first knew Cambridge, was a centre, if not of spiritual, certainly of some intellectual life, under the brilliant and original preaching of Robert Robinson. In 1791, a greater man and one of the greatest of all Christian orators succeeded to the pastorate, Robert Hall of Bristol, Simeon's near contemporary in birth and death, and for many years his friend. In Simeon's notices of his own early days, as we shall find later, there occur allusions to the dissenting meetings and to the need of care lest his own flock, once awakened to spiritual earnestness, should be scattered amongst them. It would seem that nonconformist Christians had been more zealous in Cambridge than their brethren of the church. End of chapter 1